Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. It is great to have you with us. The U.S. government is using a familiar tool in new ways, hoping to impact the behavior, the economies, and the technological progress of some of our competitors. The tool, export controls. The aim, to prevent other nations from stealing U.S. technology and using it against us, says U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. He spoke about export controls at the Special Competitive Studies Project Global Emerging Technology Summit in September. Earlier this year, the United States and our allies and partners levied on Russia the most stringent technology restrictions ever imposed on a major economy. These measures have inflicted tremendous costs, forcing Russia to use chips from dishwashers in its military equipment. This has demonstrated that technology export controls can be more than just a preventative tool in crisis and in extremis. If implemented in narrow circumstances, when the certain bar is met in a way that is robust, durable, and comprehensive, they can be a new strategic asset in the U.S. and allied toolkit to impose costs on adversaries and even over time degrade their battlefield capabilities and their capacity to project power. Joining me today to discuss export controls, their use, their effectiveness, their limitations, Alan Estevez, U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security. Great to have you here. Hey, it's a pleasure. Explain, if you would, in the simplest and most straightforward way possible, what export controls are. In its simplest form, export controls are protecting U.S. technology from being sold or used by foreign countries. Generally, they're used to protect the highest end of U.S. technology from going to adversarial countries. Why should an American who doesn't work in technology, let's say, doesn't work in national security, why should they care about this? Because, you know, as a leader in technology and global leader in technology, uh, we want to ensure that a foreign country, let's use what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now, is not using U.S. technology against our allies or against us. So, you know, as a former defense official, as a former official of, of the U.S. Department of Defense, you know, my job at DOD was to provide our forces, think sons and daughters of Americans that are joined the military, we wanted to give them the best equipment possible so that they were always had something better than any adversary they were going to fight. I don't want to be feeding our adversaries with that technology that can be used against our troops. So at its fundamentalist, it's protecting the United States and its allies from the use of our own technology against us. In fact, I call myself the Chief Technology Protection Officer of the United States. U.S. rolled out export controls, as you mentioned, against Russia at the outset of the war against Ukraine. And yet, the war is grinding on. We've looked at some of the technology that's landed in Ukraine, and there are U.S. components inside. So does that mean the export controls have failed? It does not. First of all, you know, countries have stockpiles of stuff. So Russia has stockpiles that they are expending right now. So export controls are not like a guillotine coming down, an immediate effect. 
they're going to take effect over time. So what we're doing is slowly squeezing the life out of the Russian defense industrial base. So at some point, they are not going to be able to reconstitute their military. That's point one. Point two, just because a component has the branding of a U.S. company on it, A, it doesn't mean it was made in the United States where my export controls apply. You know, it could have been made in a foreign nation by the subsidiary of that company, or it could be counterfeit, or it could have been smuggled in to evade export controls. Uh, the reality is smuggling in is not going to, you know, there's always going to be some leakage that gets into a country, uh, but not insufficient quantity for them to be able to manage a, a mass production of equipment. So uh, from that standpoint, I think over time, you're going to see great result. The other thing is we are using factors where we can stop foreign countries that are producing U.S. equipment from U.S. manufacturers are using U.S. tools to make what they are making from shipping to Russia by putting export controls on that through something called the Foreign Direct Product Rule. I know that's esoteric, uh, but it, what it does do is it stops them from being able to export something to Russia that we care about. So Russia's engaged in a war that we uh, are opposed to. China is not engaged in a war, and yet we've just imposed a pretty extensive set of export controls against China. What's the goal? So China, over the last, you know, over, over many years, I don't want to put a timeline on it, has been significantly modernizing its military. Uh, you know, it's been arming uh, bases in the South China Sea for at least 10 years, building up bases, building reefs where they're putting uh, military equipment, uh, certainly threatening neighbors, uh, certainly threatening Taiwan. Uh, and you saw the when Speaker Pelosi visited in August, uh, what China is capable of doing, which in that situation, they launched multiple missiles over Taiwan, flew multiple aircraft around it, more or less put ships around the island uh, and for a short period of time. But they have certainly made clear that they will intend to bring Taiwan into China, whether peacefully or militarily. Uh, they're also, of course, using technology to suppress their own people. The suppression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province is using technology. So what we have done is we put uh, export controls on the highest end, highest end semiconductors. So it's not all semiconductors. They're still capable of making uh, more mundane, everyday semiconductors. But the highest end that would go into the highest end of military equipment or the highest end surveillance equipment. So they're already using U.S. technology in their military systems. Are we moving too late? Were we too laissez-faire about all of this? You know, that's a good question on whether uh, we should have acted sooner. But regardless, neither the China or the United States has really harnessed uh, the next generation of capability. You know, AI, artificial intelligence infused logistics and command and control capability, and even artificial intelligence inside weapon systems. And what we have done is cut them off from being able, to, being able to do that in the future. How reliant are they on U.S. chips, high-end chips? China has its own 
processes and capability. And of course, the highest end chips are not made in the United States. The highest end chips are actually fabricated in Taiwan. Yeah, which opens up a totally different can of worms. But However, every chip in the world uses some factor of U.S. technology, whether it's the tools that fabricate chips or the design software that makes that designs chips. So we're able to cut that off. And we're working with allied countries to cut off uh, the highest end chips that could be fabbed elsewhere from going to China. So the rules we put out actually impact what Taiwan is able to sell to China. Okay, let's talk about what the export controls against China actually include. One, cutting off access to the high-end chips that you've talked about. Two, you've talked about inhibiting them from designing their own. How are you doing that? The highest-end capability already had controls on it for design, right, under under something uh, dual-use technology regime that's already in place. The what we are doing is we stop them from getting the tools they need to fabricate those highest end. And of course, they cannot no longer go to Taiwan to get the highest end chips fabricated. And they can't go to Korea to get the highest end chips fabricated, which is the two places that fabricated the highest end chips today. Uh, so we're preventing them from getting the tools necessary to do that indigenously. To prevent them from being able to build their own tools, we put export control restrictions on components of those tools. So they can't, they now have to create a whole supply chain in order to develop their own inherent tool capability. We're working with our allies to bring our allies into further compliance on that so that our allies will put like restrictions on, on China. And then the final thing we did is we put controls on US persons operating in their high fa- highest end fabs. So if you buy a chip making tool from Applied or LAMP uh, Research, you know, two of the highest end chip makers are KLA, chip uh, tool makers, you need one of their technicians to calibrate the machine to, in order to fabricate the tool. So we've stopped that as well. So we've put a pretty good wrench in, again, for the highest end capability that China desires to make. So have you got an estimate of how long it might take for China to develop its own high-end chip manufacturing capability, given these export controls that you put in place? Uh, You know, the ranges that I've seen on that range from five to 10 years. I prefer, uh, as a national security professional, to go to the short end of that, the five-year timeline. And so what we need to do in order to retain the gap that we are now opening up is we need to invest here in expanding that. So making the next generation of chips and the next generation of tools for making chips uh, in the United States and in uh, along with our allies. So our allies have a a role in this. Uh, The Chips Act that passed last year, that Secretary Raimondo, my boss was so, She played a critical role in getting that passed uh, for President Biden. The CHIPS Act uh, that we are implementing inside uh, the Department of Commerce is going to be key, one of the keys to to being able to run faster. So we play offense and defense. I'm the defensive lead on this. Rolling out chip capability in the United States is going to be the offense capability. I've read that U.S. industry is not thrilled about this. One, 
they had a market in China, which has now been cut off. And number two, some of them have said that the earnings that they made in China helped fund the research and development that was keeping the U.S. ahead in this technology race. What do you say? So a couple of factors there. One, and I've talked to the executives of all these firms that were impacted. Point one, what we've really done is really very targeted. So it's not all of China that's impacted. There are a few tools that, re- that have a blanket uh, sale on China because those tools are capable of making the highest end. But we allow sales of tools to legacy fabrication facilities. So not the state of the art, but the legacy uh, fabrication facilities can still buy the tools that are necessary to produce legacy chips. So those companies still have revenue from China. It's not completely cut off. Uh, most of the executives that we've talked to, in fact, all of the executives I've talked to, understand the national security implications of this. So that we are, in a, in a sense, protecting them as U.S. citizens when we do this. And three, as fabs move and as you know, we invest in fabrication facilities here, as the Europeans in, invest in fabrication facilities, those sales will just migrate out of China to other places. So they'll still be able to reap revenue and make the investments they need to build the next generation tools. You've mentioned allies a couple of times. When we imposed export controls against Russia, the allies were on board. When it comes to China, how many of them have signed up? We are working through that with our allies right now. We decided to go ahead and do this now as a down payment, uh, again, for the chip sector, uh, for the semiconductor sector, to show them that this was serious uh, and we're in deep discussions with our key allies around that now, and I expect- But uh, they've not signed on, correct? Uh, we have not closed any deals yet, but I would expect to do so in the near term. Why are they reluctant to come on board? Is it just because of the economic might of China, and they're worried about being on the wrong side of the fence here? Look, th- these people are allies. They share our, our national security concerns, and they share our values. So when they look at China and what China is doing militarily and what China is doing, and again, in suppression of their own human rights, our allies are listening. They want assurances from us that this was done from a national security perspective. We've given them those assurances. Uh, and so they're assessing what, you know, we, again, we're, we're trying to work with them through the nuance of this. And those discussions are very fruitful. Can you tell me when and who you're going to have some people join on board? Uh, Most of these nations would prefer us to not talk about who we're talking to until such time as we reach a deal. So in conjunction with export controls, there's something called an entity list. Explain exactly what that is. The entity list in its core is really a regulatory mechanism for requiring licenses, requiring someone to ask whether they can export to a particular party. But in the shorthand version, most people look at the entity list as a blacklist. If you're on the entity list, it means that for some reason, we have decided that you're a troublesome party and that you require extra scrutiny on licenses going there. Uh, We have added uh, well over 100 parties to the entity list under the Biden administration related to China. I think it's over 400 plus parties to the entity list in Russia in the last uh, year and a half. 
Uh, and we're going to continue to use the entity list for that. And it's a great tool for managing uh, troublesome companies that are wish to import technology to whatever nation they happen to reside in. Though, is it always easy to identify them? Aren't there a lot of shell companies and subsidiaries and so forth that make that challenging? That is challenging. And there's a little bit of whack-a-mole capability that goes into managing the entity list. Nonetheless, again, drawing on the uh, full uh, gamut of our intelligence community, uh, we're able to, to uh, work to keep pace with that. China is famous or infamous for just taking what it wants, for stealing it one way or another. Are they going to be able to do that in the case of high-end chips? You know, there's lots of facets that go into making a chip, including the, you know, the things that I just talked about, the tooling, the, the fabrication facilities, et cetera. The production process in and of itself is key to that. And of course, they've gone out and hired some uh, real talent to do that. And let's not uh, you know, denigrate the capability of the Chinese. They have some very smart folks there that are able to do this. So as I said, there's only a short period of time we're going to be able to work around this. So from an export control side, I think that we will have a serious impact on their capability for a given period of time. Will they try to go around that? Will they you know, try to do some cyber theft? Will they set up cutout companies to try to buy this? Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I don't own the cyber threat side of this equation, uh, but companies do need to protect themselves just as you and I need to protect ourselves from cyber threats. And certainly any corporation in any nation should be thinking about that. From the export control side, from what can be leaked through, you know, I have uh, export enforcement officers on my staff. We're one of the few nations that have export controls and export enforcement linked in the same organization. But it's not just my export enforcement officers. I draw on the full gamut of United States capability in that regard. So I draw on the expertise of the intelligence capability of our intelligence community. They provide us lots of information that we're able to act on from an enforcement status. I work with the FBI. I work with Homeland Security. So it's the full gamut of United States capability in this space. I've read reports that say that commerce doesn't have enough people to do that kind of enforcement, and they don't have the modern systems that would make this enforcement easier and more effective. One, I could always use more people, but do we have the people that can do this? And again, the answer is yes, because I'm bringing more than just the people I have. I am bringing uh, a full interagency capability around this. But of course, you know, more people is always helpful. And yes, I could use uh, modern capability, modern supply chain assessment tools to help do this. But we are, you know, we do have modern skiffs with uh, intelligence flowing in. I read intelligence every day around this. I mark it up, my export enforcement leaders mark it up, and we go out and take action. Talk to me for a minute, though, about the systems that you have at your disposal. How old are they? I don't look at the age of the system. You know, we're not, I, I read that report. It's not exactly accurate in the capabilities that we have. But I'm also very familiar with some of the new, newer uh, AI-infused supply chain tools. And yes, we're going to move out and get some of those. 
do you find some irony in the fact that you dealing with the AI capabilities of other nations don't have the AI tools that might be useful to you? Uh, actually, I don't because most companies are not using those tools yet. They're fairly new on the marketplace. Uh, I happen to be very familiar with them from a past life. Uh, so, I, all, you know, as COVID started, people started to realize the importance of supply chains. Major companies may have already done that. And tr it's true that the large manufacturers certainly did. Just reading an article about how Apple's supply chain was the core of their becoming the, the highest cap uh, company in the 2000s uh, teens. But the reality is most companies don't understand their supply chain down two, three, four tiers at, at most. When COVID happened and suddenly it was like, where do I get PPE from? Where do I get masks from? Where do I get this material from? Companies suddenly had an epiphany about their supply chains and reliance on their supply chains on a single point of failure. You know, it went from being yawn when you start talking about supply chains to, wow, it's on the front page of the Post, the Times, and the Journal every day. So that's where we are. Companies have made that uh, realization, and so have we. We've talked about the fact that the allies haven't signed on yet to the export controls about China. Um, are they cooperating with you on enforcement then? They'll certainly work with us on any enforcement thing regarding our own export controls. And we have strong cooperation with our allies, not just you know for China, for any export enforcement actions, right? Certainly with Russia right now, we're working very closely with our allies on export enforcement. And we've strengthened, so, frankly, if you want to talk about what Putin did, he's helped strengthen our relationships in that regard. Technology evolves very rapidly. There may be new pieces of technology that become um, very important to us where we want to protect our edge if we have one. Can government keep up? There's no sleep for the weary in this job. Uh, you know, we always have to be looking at what's on the horizon uh, and what technologies are going to evolve and what technologies are going to evolve that they could be dangerous to us. Uh, if you get out too far out in front of it, you can stifle the innovation. You don't want to do that. But you also don't want uh, technology developed either in, you know, by foreign adversaries that can be used against us uh, with our own technology. I'm working closely with my former colleagues at the Defense Department who are out there buying technology, you know, developing and buying technology. I'm talking to uh, my colleagues uh, out in Silicon Valley and other uh, tech hubs. Where are they going? Because, you know, we, we do want to be like what Wayne, Wayne Gretzky used to say, I want to skate, skate ahead of the puck, not where the puck is. So there is no rest for the weary. You have to stay on top of this. Uh, do we have the talent uh, inside the government? Across the government, the answer is yes. Uh, in commerce, I have some very good technologists. And again, not just in BIS, my organization in commerce, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology also has some really great uh, technological expertise that we're able to draw on. So I'm confident in being able to stay up. How critical would you say technology is to national security? Technology is the cornerstone of national security. And there's lots of facets of national security. 
probably the true cornerstone is the people that are engaged. And that includes from the full gamut of our U.S. military, the finest military in the world today. That's probably been the finest military ever uh, to our technologists, uh, both inside the lab infrastructure that we work at DOD, DOE, uh, Homeland Security, uh, to the great innovative ecosystem that the United States produces through its uh, capabilities. Uh, all of those feed into the national security ecosystem. Uh, sometimes we don't do as well as harvesting some of that as we should. I think there's a great focus on that right now. So if technology is so key to national security, how important a tool are export controls? Export controls are a key tool in our toolbox, and they're certainly a tool that has risen to the forefront uh, recently. Having the National Security Advisor out talking about export controls is not the norm. But there are other tools, including our own investment capability. And it's not just investment of taxpayer dollars. It's tax credits. It's R&D credits. It's the like. Uh, and our own innovative capabilities that you have to use. Cyber protection is part of that, right? We need to protect ourselves from cyber theft and from cyber intrusion. Uh, but we, you know, we shouldn't use export controls exclusively. We need to use them in conjunction with those other tools to come out with the right protection capability while still driving the innovation that we need to stay ahead. What's the future of export controls, do you think? We've moved into an area where through when I look at China and China's military civil fusion strategy, where dual use technology, I can't guarantee what it's going to be used for. By their own definition, if it's used by a commercial company, it can also be used by the military. Now, you can argue that we also have a civil military fusion strategy, but the way that works in the United States is the U.S. military will put out a request for a proposal, and a company can either decide to respond or not respond. There's no coercion in that equation. And if they think that the economics bear them bidding on it, they'll bid on it. In China, there's, you know, they don't have that opportunity. If we want it, it goes there. So the end use controls that we have, this is a bad end user, but I'll let it go elsewhere, doesn't really work as well in the Chinese situation. So I really have to take a cold look at all technology that's floating, flowing to China and make the decision to cut off uh, where it's appropriate. And it's not just in the semiconductor space. We're going to be looking at other technologies to our earlier part of this conversation. What, what, are, you know, what technologies are growing? Can we keep up? And the answer there is yes. But we're going to keep uh, looking at, at what technologies need to be stopped, and we're going to stop them as appropriate. How will you know whether they've been effective? You know, that's kind of proving a negative in some regard, but you can see if they are not developing capabilities or if they're slowed down in developing capabilities, you can assume there's some impact there at the same time that we're developing capabilities here. Are there some specific technology areas that you're keeping an eye on where you'll be able to measure the impact? of the export controls. Again, you know, no matter what area it is, you're always going to have that measurement uh, capability because they're not a guillotine. They don't just come down and stop. Uh, but we're certainly looking at you know, quantum. We're looking at some of the biotech areas. Biotech's a tricky space because I want to 
encourage cooperation and development of biotech capability that can save human lives. I don't want to cooperate in the development of biotech capabilities that can take human lives, right? So, you know, there's, there's a, that space there. Those are two that come to mind. I think uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan raised both of them. Alan Estevez, Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security. Thanks so much. One note, since we recorded this interview several weeks ago, it has been reported that Japan and the Netherlands have signed on to support the semiconductor export controls against China. But this has not been officially confirmed by Japan, the Netherlands, or the United States. Thanks so much for joining us for NetSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Take care. <laughs>